Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors, Najahi Events. More about them later. Okay, let's get on to today's guest. Listen to this. This lady is the first person in history to create successfully and sustain a full-time career as a solo percussionist. So that's somebody that decided they wanted to be a percussionist and not join an orchestra. She's performed with all of the great orchestras, conductors and artists in the world, but now it's where it gets interesting. So listen to this. She's a double Grammy Award winner. She's a BAFTA nominee. She's a composer for film, television and theatre. She's been awarded an OBE and has over 100 international awards today, including the Polar Music Prize and the Companion of Honour. And after all that success, you'll be really surprised to know she's deaf. She lost her hearing at the age of eight and she understood and learnt what it meant to truly listen. She's taking this ability and transforming it into a tool that will help improve communication and social unity. Her book, Listen Well, is helping people enhance their relationship with listening in order to create lives that are more vivid and meaningful. She is currently curating her collection, a collection of global instruments and other items that will create a center dedicated to her mission. I am so excited that she agreed to come and be on the show today. Please welcome the incredible Dame Evelyn Glennie. So Evelyn, thank you so much to come uh, and join us today on the podcast. It's fantastic to have somebody of your, dare I say, extreme high level of intellect as I listen to a lot of what you talk about um, <laughs> and really <laughs> learn from somebody that I think has made such a mark on this world in, in, in quite a few different ways. So what I want to try and start with today is giving our audience the benefit of understanding who this incredible lady is with, with so many achievements. So maybe you can take me back to the beginning. And, and before you do, um, my first love came from Bankery, which is on the River Dee, which isn't far away. So <laughs> I have a bit of exposure to that part of the world. But anyway, just uh, maybe introduce yourself. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for having me. And um, yes, my name is Evelyn Glennie, and I was brought up in the northeast of Scotland, as you say, not too far from the very beautiful area, picturesque area of Bankery. And uh, I'm a farmer's daughter, so my mother and father's side were both uh, farmers. And uh, and basically, my whole orchestra was the the sound of the farm. So from machinery to livestock to the seasons, the weather, you name it. So I think the trait that I very quickly realized was, um, uh, I think, respecting patience, really, because you can't force nature. And, uh, and, and it's just a remarkable thing seeing something grow from a seed or something being formed or a, a baby calf or a lamb being born and you, you nurture that, but you can't force it. And, uh, and so I just loved this whole outdoor experience, you know, the landscape of it. And, uh, and really from there, I became interested in music. 
And of course, you know, in those days, most young people were given music lessons. And so this was absolutely terrific for me, but I'd never imagined myself ever becoming a musician. Um, however, when the time came at around the age of 15 to make my mind up, I decided to give solo percussion a go. And I was very keen on percussion, and I started percussion when I was 12 years old. And really, I felt a need to perform. I felt a need to be in control of that performance and not have someone else dictate how something should be performed. So although I respected conductors, I felt that I needed to be my own conductor. I needed to be really the, the, the person at the center of making a decision and then take the consequences of that. And, uh, and so there's nothing quite like the experience of, of, I suppose, standing up on stage as a soloist and taking that responsibility. Um, what I hadn't realized was that um, I was the only one doing it on a full-time basis. And so I, I very quickly realized that, heavens, you know, I needed repertoire to be written in order to sustain a career as a solo percussionist. And so really, I would say the first 20-odd years of my performing career was um, really trying to bring the emotional side of percussion playing. We all know it's incredibly rhythmic, that it's full of color, um, and the rhythm does give us that incredible emotion. Of course it does. Um, but there's also a lyricism that you can get from a snare drum or a doombeck um, or, a, or a djembe or a tambourine or a taiko or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so it was a case of really trying to ask the composers to write substantial pieces of music for me in order to make this career a sustainable one and perhaps more importantly, ignite the the, the curiosity for the next generation so that they could feel as though, you know what, I want to be a solo percussionist. We often see when somebody loses um, one of their senses that they become better with the other senses that are left. So we, we often see the, the blind piano tuner. And, and, and so we think, why, how, what's going on? How does somebody who's lost their hearing then want to be in a musical um, uh, setup almost. And then when you think about percussion, percussion to me means vibrations. And so it, it, I watched there was a lady recently, no, not recently, that's not fair, on America's Got Talent. She, I don't know if you know who I'm talking about. She, was, she won the, whatever it is, the, the golden button. That's it, the golden button. She sang a song and Simon said to her, how are you hearing this if you can't hear? And she said, I take my shoes off and I can, I can hear it through my feet. Uh, and that for obviously all of the audience, along with the television audience that were watching, was a jaw-dropping moment. Was it? it was like, wow, <laughs> hold on a minute, that's amazing. <laughs> so it, did you choose percussion or did the percussion choose you? Well, I, you know, I had played the piano since the age of eight, which I continued and I still continue with the piano. And, uh, and I think what fascinated me about that particular instrument and still does is the enormous resonance of it. Now, every single instrument has resonance. So a woodblock has resonance um, or a cymbal has resonance. And it's the paying attention of that resonance that's really, really crucial. And of course, that resonance will... I suppose be interpreted in different ways according to the acoustics that you're in. So if you're in a, 
a wonderful synagogue or you're in a church or a cathedral or anywhere that has a wet or resonant acoustic, then that resonance you will actually perceive much more through the art of hearing, i.e. through the ear. Um, however, if you're in a very dry acoustic, like a, a recording studio or in a dry theatre or something like that, then we may perceive that resonance far, far less through the ear. But actually, if we open up our body like a resonating chamber and imagine our body to be the resonator, then suddenly, no matter what kind of acoustic it is, we will pay attention to that resonance and it will really come through our body, physically through our body, much, much more. And I think when I experienced my very first percussion lesson from the age of 12 at school, and I was wearing my hearing aids, and in, in, at that time, I thought, well, in order to hear anything, you had to just basically have it louder. You know, it needed to come through the ear, and I had absolutely no concept that sound could actually travel through the body. And it was only my percussion teacher who actually said, well, he, he struck a, a, a timpani or a kettle drum, and he just struck it once and waited. And he realized that the drum really resonated a long time. And he said, Evelyn, can you physically feel this drum? And at first I didn't know what he was talking about. You know, what do you mean physically feel it? And he asked me to put my hands on the wall of the music room. Now, the walls were really thin. You know, it was almost like an annex type of, uh, type of structure. And I put my hands on the wall and he struck the drum again. And lo and behold, I really could feel that timpani. I mean, I could feel it through my hands, my fingertips, my, you know, the whole of my fingers. And I said, wow, this is incredible. And I didn't want it to stop. I didn't want the resonance to stop because I still wanted to feel it right to the very end. And then he tuned it to a different pitch. And again, wow, it, it actually struck a different part of my hand. And it went on and on like this. So the higher the pitch, you know, the less you actually felt it through the hand and the lower the pitch, the more you felt it through a larger part of your hand. And this was just like as though the, the, the sun rays had just come up because I suddenly realized that I was not dependent on my hearing aids. I could actually take them out and feel more confident and more balanced by allowing the sound to be fed through the body rather than overloaded through the ears. And with that becomes, you know, it becomes quite painful and you do lose your balance and you lose your sense of touch. And I felt as though I was a relatively sensitive musician. You know, I, I knew about dynamics. I knew about placement of sound. And, you know, I hadn't lost my hearing as a, as a, a baby or anything like that. So I knew about dynamics and I knew about inflection and I knew about placement and all of those kinds of things. And, and really the hearing aids were, I think, obliterating that because I so just, I had to hear everything through the ear. So really this idea of allowing the body to perceive the sound was an absolute eye-opener for me. And with that became real patience with sound. And I waited for a sound to end before deciding when to link another sound. So this really changed my interpretation of music and it got me away from the written page. So I didn't have to give a note that I saw on the page two beats or four beats or seven beats or 10 beats or whatever it was. I could actually have my own sense of time through the resonance. Fascinating. That 
that because you you know as you explain it i think about it and i and and it resonates with me thinking about exactly that because there's many a time that we discard or take for granted that type of feeling coming through us i don't know listening to your favorite song on the in the car on the motorway on the way home one evening you know stuff like that so Mm. when when that really kind of like resonated with you did it excite you well, it gave me a lot of uh, a lot of clarity moving forward. Um, I mean, I found it fascinating the whole thing. Actually, um, I don't know if it excited me as such, but it gave me real kind of confidence that perhaps I could move forward. Because what I discovered was that I wasn't actually dependent on listening to other people to enjoy music. Um, that was something that I didn't do and I couldn't do in order to get the subtleties of, of the interpretation. You could get the basics of tempo and of dynamics and so on, but not the real subtleties that I was looking for as a musician. That didn't mean to say that they weren't there. Of course they were there. It was just that I was not perceiving them. And, uh, and you know, when you put something like a radio on, bearing in mind this is back in the 1970s, you know, it's not actually fulfilling the whole body. It's not giving you that bodily experience. So I wasn't a big listener of sound, and that wasn't how I got my enjoyment. How I got my enjoyment was when I was participating in sound, and I don't mean that in an egotistical way. It was quite simply, you know, it, it was the difference between watching someone else eat a nice meal as opposed to eating it yourself. Of course, you're going to have a different kind of enjoyment. So, and I discovered really that my connection with the sound gave me a lot of room to experiment because I wanted to feel it in different ways. And so this really led me into the, the feeling that, well, I, I can improvise with this. You know, it, it, I can have freedom and I can read the notation on the page, but I can also break away from that page. And I can really put my own stamp mark as to how I'm feeling that sound. And I quickly realized that actually I have my own sound because I am the sound. I'm producing that sound. You, you know what I mean? And in a way all of the drums in the world and all of the cymbals and the tambourines and everything that we have in the percussion world, you know, those are like the ingredients we have in a kitchen, you know, our fish or our meat or our vegetables or whatever it might be. But nothing's going to happen with those ingredients if someone doesn't come in and put all of these things together and tweak and experiment and, you know, does one thing or another. And it's the same with music. You know, you can have all these wonderful instruments, all the mallets and the sticks and all of the different types of acoustics and all of the different types of platforms, everything. But actually, you need that person to come along and then, you know, see what they want to put together. So putting together a sound meal. And that has to come from within. So I think really my journey has been about listening to what is inside of myself and what is resonating within myself in order to then feed that through the tools of my trade, the percussion instruments, and then through the acoustics that I'm dealing with and then get that to the audience. So, you know, it's, it, it puts on a different dimension to practice. 
and to rehearsal and to those two words, you know, we always imagine that you must practice, 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 practice. And of course, you know, that's a massive part of what we do. But actually, I probably spend more time rehearsing, and that is visualizing an audience, deciding in my mind what type of acoustic do I want to be in. That will inform me what type of mallets I want to use. It will inform me what sense of touch to use. What kind of dynamics and projection do I want to use? So I'm not just taking what I practice within the privacy of my own four walls and then plunking that in an arena or on a concert platform or in a recording studio and thinking, well, that will work. It, it won't work. So everything has to be tweaked and adapted and according to the situation that we're in. Got it. Understood. Okay. Um, you're a cellist, you're a pianist, you're a saxophonist, you're, you, you're a musician and it's kind of normal that you join a band or an orchestra. That's a kind of normal thing to do, kind <laughs> of regular, you know, you're a cellist, it's, you better get into an orchestra. Um, uh, sometimes you see the, the odd uh, string quartet that's either playing the funky music or doing something more classical, but it's kind of a thing that you do with other people. What possessed you to want to go out alone and do it alone? Where did the, the, the thinking behind that come from and where did the, 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 the courage to make that step come from? Well, interestingly, when I was at school, you know, all of my school colleagues and myself gave little solos in our school concerts, our summer concerts, Christmas concerts and so on. And so I just thought the world was full of solo percussion players. So once I made that decision to be a solo percussion player, because I simply enjoyed it, no other real reason than that. And I just love to be, um, I suppose, taking responsibility of how I interpreted something. I interpreted a piece of music and I wanted the freedom to do that. I wanted the freedom to construct programs. And, uh, and so once I became a full-time student in London at the age of 16, I said, well, I would like to be a solo percussionist. And at first they thought I'd landed from Mars. I mean, they said, well, what are you going to play? You know, who's going to listen to a two-hour percussion recital? And, uh, and who else is doing it? You know, where's the repertoire? And so on. And But already, you know, in my mind, I was doing it. And I was, you know, it, it, the, the whole vision moving forward had already been formed in my head. So in my mind, I was already doing it. So those questions that they were asking might have been present for them at that point, but they were already past in the past tense for me. And uh, Hold on and a minute, I hold on a minute. What you just said was really important. A lot of people wouldn't describe that. Those questions that they had were present for them, but they were in the past for you. It's like you'd moved on from even that being a consideration anymore because you were already on that journey in your mind, correct? Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, when you think of something, you know, it's already in your head, you know, it's already forming in your head. And because I'd been doing little solos at school, you know, for the past four years, since the age of 12, and I'm now 16, ready to be a full-time student, and I've got into the Royal Academy of Music, and, you know, I'm ready to make my own pathway as a professional musician. And the last thing I need is someone saying, no, you can't do this, you can't do that because of this and that. Now, in a way, I've always been very conscious of saying no to someone um, or saying, oh, I don't think that's right for you, because I've seen it so many times whereby people open their parcels at different times. I really have. And I, I think that we must always allow people to have that chance 
to experiment and to learn themselves and to take responsibility should something not work out for them. You know, that's the way it goes. And even if you follow the path that you desperately want to follow, there's always going to be stuff that doesn't work out for you. And you're always going to be picking yourself up one time or another, you know, many times over and over, actually. And so, you know, it, it makes no difference as regards to um, you know, whether you, you're, you're doing the, the thing that you absolutely love or the, the thing that you absolutely hate. Um, but really, this, this whole idea of listening to yourself and what feels right for you, and that's something that nobody can really see inside of you. However, how you deal with things, the actions that you take, from day to day, day to day, the building blocks of what you do is what people see. And that sticks, basically, <laughs> you know, it really does. So if somebody sees you going to, let's say, a library and you're sifting through, I don't know, well, cello repertoire, you know, and you're looking to find cello repertoire that might work on a marimba or a xylophone or a vibraphone or something so that you have something to play, you know, that doesn't mean they're not looking at you in such a way whereby, oh, well, she's spending all this time learning a vibraphone except for a, 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 an orchestral piece. No, this is for a recital. It's bits and pieces like that that, you know, through your actions, that that really do build up and then and then you know people recognize what you're you're actually aiming for many many good movies will have a hero and a sage and a villain <laughs> and uh and in your movie whether there was a villain or not i don't know but if, if you played the hero character and you think back on your life were there ever uh was there one in particular or were there a few sages along the way that were like a guiding light for you Oh, I think there were there were a few, but certainly um, when I started percussion at the age of twelve, the peripatetics or the visiting percussion teacher, um, who visited several schools throughout the northeast of Scotland, I mean, he taught me to to listen in a different way. It was him, Ron Forbes, who has just celebrated his ninetieth birthday, um, who said, "Evelyn, why don't you put your hands on the wall?" And that was just you know such a revelation. And he was such an incredible teacher, not just to me, but to everybody that that uh, that crossed his path. I mean, he was just extraordinary. And uh, and also my school classroom music teachers were amazing as well. They truly, truly were. Um, and also my school friends, you know, my pals. They it was a kind of school. I mean, the headmaster was was amazing because he believed that every child has a story to tell. And every child belongs to every department of that school. So if you find that a youngster is in a wheelchair, they belong to the sporting department. If a youngster is sight impaired, they belong to the art department. If a, a, a youngster is, is hearing impaired, they belong to the music department. So there are no assumptions. There is absolutely a, a school's job is to open up the possibilities and open up opportunities. I mean, that's what their job is. You know, that's why we have schools to ignite curiosity and interest and, and you know, vision and, and dreams and, and all of that kind of thing. And, uh, and it's there for all people. You know, it, it has to be there for all people in order for the world to move forward. You know, it, it, it really does. And 
it's I think there are so many people that that I feel very grateful to have had, you know, as part of my my journey. And it's really influenced the way that I've moved forward. Now, you've won Grammys. It sounds kind of cool when you say it like that, doesn't it? You've (laughs) got got an OVE. I mean, there must have been some very proud moments in your career uh, along the way. And, you know, these types of things happen to very few people in the grand scheme of things. Can you remember your proudest moment? Well, funnily enough, at the moment, um, my mother passed away at the end of February this year. And I have been given the task um, of going through all of her bits and pieces. And... um, and so all of this has just arrived on my doorstep from Scotland, literally the other day. And, you know, there are so many photographs and so many uh, correspondence and all sorts of things that she kept, newspaper cuttings, programs, concert programs, you know, this and that, and also things from school. And so I've been, you know, reflecting on all of these as I've been sifting through everything. And you know, you always imagine there must have been a certain moment, you know, that you knew something, you know, you were reaching a certain stage or a level or you became successful or something like that. And it's so funny when you think of it like that, because the, the reality is, is no, actually, that that isn't really the case. It, it really has been a case of, of building blocks. You know, the very fact that I went to such a, a wonderful school you know, was incredible. So for a youngster, that's incredible where everything is possible. I mean, it was a normal school, but the ethos of the school was incredible. Um, and then getting through to the Royal Academy of Music. So that was another building block, you know, and a real kind of right, here I go kind of thing. And then graduation, you know, another momentous step. So, it, you know, it doesn't mean much to anybody else, but for yourself, you know, this These are important points, really. And each step gives you that confidence to move forward and to just be a little bit more clear as to what kind of tapestry you're you're kind of creating here. And, you know, there are so many times whereby you just kind of see all of the knots and the threads going in this direction, that direction and so on. But actually, all of these building blocks will help you, you know, sew these things together and gradually you begin to see what picture you're actually forming and, and creating. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, I remember holding my first ever solo CD in my hand. I thought, oh, wow, that's incredible. You know, wow, I've made a CD. Well, it wasn't me who made the CD. I played the music, obviously, you know, and it's got my face on the cover of it and so on. But you feel as though you've done everything with it. But actually, there's such a, a large support team, you know, and very creative people who, you know, help put all of these things together. And I think that's something that we we must never really forget is that, you know, everything we do is never really in isolation. So although I was the first full-time solo percussionist in the world, there was an awful lot of people that actually along the way said, ah, okay, well, why don't you play for 15 minutes after dinner? You know, so I played then a little selection after dinner. And then somebody might say, oh, that was quite interesting. Oh, well, yeah. 
oh, how about you play half an hour at, at another do that somebody else is organizing? So that's 30 minutes. And I, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, why don't you go along to a music club and play for an hour and give a, a lunchtime concert for an hour? Well, step by step by step. And then suddenly, oh, why not the proms? You know, the first ever percussion recital in the history of the proms in London, you know, and then that leads to a percussion concerto in the Albert Hall. One thing leads to another. And when I think you dodged that a little bit, if I'm honest with you, I think there's kind of like small wins along the way. But where was the <laughs> where, where, where were the, the really proud moments? It's interesting that you've gone through um, with your mum uh, that experience and having them the chance to reminisce and go through mm. old photos and documents. It must, mm. you know, it must bring out a huge sense of because that's when you realise sometimes maybe where your parents may not have said it as much, uh, where they're really proud of you. Well, I think that's interesting, actually, because, you know, I've been reading letters whereby, you know, those were in the, the letter writing days. So before emails and even before faxes and, uh, you know, people wrote so beautifully, um, you know, the, the words that they used and also their handwriting was just so beautiful. And so often people would write to my mum and dad, you know, and would say, oh, I've seen Evelyn on TV or I've seen Evelyn in concert or whatever it might be. And they've written to them and mum and dad, or especially my mum, my, my father passed away a long time ago, but my mum would then write back to them and, and say, well, thank you very much for your kind words. And, and it was there that she said, well, yes, we are proud, you know, and it, it's, but reading it whereby they were selective with their words, you know, it was, and, and they were very poetic with their words. And, and so I could almost get a glimpse of how they, how they were feeling. I know for sure. I mean, I was born in 1970, so I was a kid in the 70s and probably in the <laughs> 80s as a teenager and stuff. And mm -mm. I, remember, uh, I remember my dad used to write, he was overseas and he used to write letters to me. Do you remember the Par Avion um, yes. envelopes with the blue and the red? And a letter would come and uh, it would be everything. And he would tell me what he was up to and he'd be telling me to work hard at school and Aww. telling me how proud he was of me. And those, those letters, I treasure, mm. like I treasure them. Absolutely. And I think that's true. I think you see the character of the letter, the envelope, um, you know, the patients that would have gone into sending it, writing it, sending it, receiving it, reading it and so on. And we certainly don't have the same patients now. Um, however, there are also, you know, positives with, with the technology that we deal with and the, the incredible communication that we have, such as we're having right now. Um, but it, it's definitely altered, I think, the way uh, that we digest a message and the time that we spend with a message, I think, is, is quite different you nowadays. Know, you know what? As I think about you saying that, I think about my, my the letter would take six weeks to come to us. My father was in West Africa um, mm. and a letter would take six weeks to go back. But my dad would write a letter and it would be three or four pages of handwriting, you know, joined up handwriting, um, uh, paper. And it would be every single week he would send me a letter. And every single week, as soon as I got the letter, I would go and sit in my bedroom or at the dinner table and I would write my letter back. We made more effort to do something that's a lot more labor intensive let's say than it is to use a device and yet when it's so much easier to use a device we don't make that effort no we don't make the same amount of effort it's almost like it's it's just taken for granted almost to some degree isn't it 
I think that's true, and I think the choice of words as well, the the expression that we use is is um, because it's just so available. You know, it is so, um, and you expect an answer. So I think that the how we deal with our time, and I think this is something that certainly during the pandemic, we've all perhaps or many of us have been much more aware of. It's been magnified, whereby we've had this opportunity possibly to think about our time and how precious it is. And certainly for, for, from my own perspective, you know, I'm coming out of this situation where, um, you know, I, I don't know how many uh, no's I've said this week in that, no, is this meeting really necessary? I'm sure we can have one email and it's, it's sorted, you know, but with the right use of words and the right focus on what you want to say in that email. And, uh, and I think that we would be able to really um, probably, you know, reduce the amount of emails that, that go between people enormously if we actually just began to consider truly and, and began to consider what it, what it is like for people receiving emails, you know, and what it's actually doing. And I think that our headspace during this whole pandemic um, has allowed us to listen to ourselves actually much, much more and listen to what's right on our doorstep. And it's just a treasure. You know, it really is a treasure. And, and yeah, I, I definitely want to protect that a lot, lot more. How do we become better listeners? We need time. We just need time. You know, we need time. You know, there's, there's always this feeling that we can multitask. We, we can do many things at once and, you know, we can look at our phone, we can watch the telly, we can, um, you know, listen to somebody having a conversation and make decisions. We can't, not really. And I think that, you know, as a musician myself, I know what it feels like to spend ages in the studio, you know, just concentrating on one note and how I want it to link to another note. Now, for most people, if they were peeping through the keyhole, would think, what on earth is she doing? You know, why does that matter? You know, what difference? Who would notice kind of thing? And But the point is, is that when you do this over and over, it becomes then quite a beautiful thing that you're presenting to someone, just like a chef is, you know. So if they splattered a really well-cooked meal onto a plastic plate and couldn't care how it was presented, we would taste it quite differently and the ex whole experience would be quite different. Um, you know, there's a massive difference between, you, you know, drinking a really nice wine in a plastic cup as opposed to a, a, a nice wine glass. You know, it becomes an experience where that wine glass is part of the, the, whole, the whole journey of, of, and the, the memory of this particular uh, experience. And and so, really, when we are talking about listening, what's the experience we want? You know, what is it that we really, really want? So, as we're having the conversation together now, for me, at this moment in time, you're the most important person in my life. You know, that's it. That's all that matters to me at this moment in time. Otherwise, what's the point of having the conversation? You know, what, what is the point? So it, it matters to me that there is this proper time given to create this conversation. And it's the same as if we just decide to have our lunch out in the car park or something. You know, fine, if that's what you want to do, 
listen to the experience. Just listen to the experience. And it's kind of being with the experience. So it's not really, I'm not talking about, you know, a Zen-like experience or anything that's religious or anything like that. It is quite simply what's available to us all. And it's just the time. I, I'm fond of climbing mountains and trekking and stuff. And I remember the first time I went to Everest, realizing when we were hiking uh, towards uh, Namchi Bazaar, which is on the way to base camp, that there were, there were no engines. There was no external noises from engines, mm -hmm. cars, uh, generators, and anything motorized at all. And as I, as I sat there thinking about that, I also was thinking about the silence, but then I was also thinking about how loud everything was as well. So it took me to a place mm -hmm. of being, wow, there's none of that going on. And then I, I, I kind of zoned in or tuned in or, or, or my, my ears got in line with what else was going on that maybe I don't give any attention to during the course of my standard working living week. And mm. whether it was the birds or whether it was water, water was a big thing, okay? So water coming down the mountain was a big thing. Um, um, yaks, the hooves of yaks as they were coming along the pathways. And it made me smile thinking about all these things that I, I didn't listen to, didn't hear, I wasn't exposed to, because it's almost like I wasn't really listening to what was going around me. It was almost like I was trying to push away noises and sounds that I heard on a regular basis. I get the benefit. You know, one of the most important things for me is every year to go and climb a mountain. And, and the reason it's important is I get to live in that moment for that 10-day period, all day, every day, being totally mm. engrossed in what I am doing and not worrying about anything else that's going on. No, no, no work issues. Have I got a podcast to film? You know, whatever it may be, nothing. Mm. I have that moment. But when, I, when I'm in that moment, and it's not Zen because I'm not a Zen type of person, but when I'm in that moment during the course of that 10-day period, I can hear everything. Mm. Ev I, everything. I, I, Absolutely. It, and it's fascinating that, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm by no means a climber <laughs> at all. Um, I like to walk. However, I do remember having the experience of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Okay. And, uh, and our team leader, and, and the, the reason I was climbing uh, this mountain was because I, at the time I was a patron of Able Child Africa. So there was, there was a group of us, you know, climbing um, for the same purpose. And so the team leader said, um, so, you know, why are you climbing the mountain? And we all said, well, we want to raise as much money as possible for Able Child Africa and do this and do that and da, 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 da. And, uh, and he said, he, he just sort of waited for a while. And then he said, why are you climbing the mountain? And we thought, well, we've just told you. And, and he said again, third time, why are you climbing the mountain? And we said, well, what, what do you mean? And he said, the most important thing, your focus is to climb the mountain. Not think about the consequences of raising money and, and all of this kind of thing, but focus on climbing that mountain. Every single step of climbing that mountain, every experience, every sense must be absolutely razor sharp when you climb that mountain. That is the most important thing, you know, is to get yourself up there and down there in one piece 
you know, so you're climbing the mountain to be, you know, as fit and as healthy as possible mentally and physically. And I thought, well, that's incredible. And at first I thought, well, how selfish of them, you know, we we want to raise as much money. And then, you know, I thought he's absolutely right. You know, we had to only make that our one and only priority, that mountain up and down, you know, in one piece. So forget about the money raising, forget about Able Child Africa, forget about everything else, forget about, oh, you know, I, I should have brought this clothing or, or that clothing or those boots or whatever it might have been, or, oh, I've, I've, my phone is running out or whatever. You know, it's quite simply that mountain is the most important thing in our lives at that point in time. And, and that was a big lesson, really. And then afterwards, we could then concentrate and focus on the money raising and, and the celebration of having done the activity and all of that. But he was trying to get as less baggage off us, off our shoulders and, you know, out of our minds as possible so that it could be absolutely focused on the, the task at hand. Interesting. I've done Kilimanjaro as well, so I know what you mean. It's, um, uh, I think when you know, just, just while we stay on that subject, just for a second, when you summit Kilimanjaro, as you would have done on summit day, getting up at midnight and going up for the summit, that's the tough day of the, of the experience. That's, that's your challenge. Very the, re- tough. The, the rest of it is challenging and you have altitude issues to deal with, but summit day is, is really where, where, you know, you know, it kind of like gets kind of hairy, doesn't it? You know, for a lot of people. It's, 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 it it's, is. But, but when you're in that position, so you're on that, that steep climb, on that summit climb, it's super cold, it's windy, you've got snow under, underfoot, um, and it's, it's steep and it's intimidating, and in, to some degree it's overwhelming. All you must concentrate on is one foot in front of the next in front of the it, next because there's nothing else to focus on it's that that's where you have to focus regardless of anything just take one more step i last week i came back from mount elbrus and it's a steeper mm. climb but same thing you know and, I, and i've done quite a few mountains it, it's one more step but that one more step is almost like i put these things on these are you know noise reduction headphone things it's almost like i'm putting a noise reduction headphone on because i become so tuned in i can then feel i can hear and i can sense every single step with the crampons on as it crunches onto the snow and so when you're on that summit it really does you know really zone in doesn't it for for, for us all i think it, it it absolutely does and and you know the advice from the team leader was was simply watch the step of the person in front of you and and go with that you know what i mean so it's a simple simple instruction in a way and and you know the whole team was very good at simplifying things and not putting baggage on us to try and remember this that and the next thing it was quite simply just watch the person in front of you just follow their footsteps and you're absolutely right you know that that even on that last day you could have got so head over heels with, oh, we're nearly there, we're nearly there, we're nearly there, and oh, I can't wait to get up, and and all of this sort of thing. And that's when mistakes happen. And interestingly, when we were coming down the mountain, that was the most crucial part because, you know, they were so vigilant that we weren't, oh, right, we've done it now, and, and then we head over heels, you know, tumble down the mountain. 
been and they were very very conscious about that that the steps you know were equally important coming down as they were going up mm. and 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 it is a lesson that because you know when we talk about a career or a journey or uh, a particular uh, occasion that uh, you know, might have been a, a big occasion to elevate a career or whatever, but it's all building blocks. It really is. And I think I've probably got building blocks tattooed over my forehead, but I, I am a big believer in that. And it, it, it's not something you can take for granted either. So although you've been in a profession a long time, in my case, nothing's taken for granted. Absolutely nothing, you know, because you never know what's going to happen. Um, you never know how you're going to be feeling the, 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 the next time. And I think the older you become, the more you really are listening, physically listening to how you're going to negotiate the instruments. Um, already there are certain pieces of music that I have put on the shelf now and think, thank you very much. I've had my journey with you. And it's just this innate feeling whereby you listen to yourself and you think, yep, it's time to shelve that. And, uh, and other pieces that are coming out of the woodwork where I think, oh, you know what, now I feel it's, it's, it's time to, to have a go at that. So, and that's all interesting. So you're always in tune with yourself. When we, when, look, it's easy to tie listening and music together. It's easy to make that, that relationship mm. and that correlation. But listening isn't just about music, even though you use it in that way. So maybe maybe we could just brainstorm and you could give me some advice. Let's use me as a guinea pig, okay, a business person that 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 employs you know close to a hundred people in businesses. How do, how do professionals, how do business people become? What tips can you give them to become better listeners? What what uh, not only tips, but what kind of steps can they take, or what kind of uh, activities can they uh, embrace to try and uh, identify and utilize that? Well, I think what I find important is. Certainly in the industry that I belong to, now you think that, well, I'm a musician, so I belong to the music industry. Of course I do, but the music industry consists of so many avenues, you know, from science to engineering um, to business to uh, the actual music making itself to entertainment and so on and so forth. So um, a wide scope that uh, we, we liaise with. And I have found the most fruitful relationships are those whereby they happen face to face. They happen whereby there is this understanding of who the person is. Now, I'm not saying we must send birthday cards and Christmas cards all the time and, and remember what the sons and daughters are doing all the, all the time. But I am thinking, what is it that makes that person tick within the office and out with the office? Where are the common, common threads there, the common things in, con in conversation, so that the language we use can be more um, observed, I suppose, towards whom we're actually communicating with. I remember a, a tiny example when I was at school and, and I was having real problems um, with maths. You know, I just didn't like the subject, basically. And I had a maths teacher who was trying to drill certain things into me, and, and it was real hard work both for both of us. And However, he was a very talented pianist, and so in the music department, he was sometimes called on to, to play the piano at certain things. And he would see me in the music department, and he could see a totally different specimen. You know, he could see me just in a much, much 
different way. And it cottoned on to him that, hold on a second, you know, this person is so interested in music and so not interested in maths. So how could he, as a maths teacher, change his vocabulary to try and make me more interested in maths or at least allow the penny to drop, as it were, excuse the pun. And so, and that's what he did. Now, that was a skill and observation of a particular teacher, but it's no different really in a lot of the industries that we're in. And that's a form of listening. It's just paying attention. It costs nothing. You know, it's just that time to spend over a cup of tea or a coffee or something or a drink and, and you know, just get to know that person a little bit more. And And I think also, you know, having absolute transparent conversations, group conversations that are not always about delivery, not always about, you know, assessing what people have achieved and things like that, but just we're all in this together, really. Now, I work in a business um, in my own situation that is a fairly flat structure. And so, you know, it's it's quite small as well. And so we can all tap into, you know, what's going on at, at a particular time with a particular person. And that's quite useful. And we can talk about it. It's really, really important not to dwell on it, but we can talk about it. And then we can provide that support system. And uh, and I think that's that's pretty, pretty crucial, actually. But I find that also, you know, when you get people outside of their work environment, you can tell a lot about a person, you know, so it could be getting them doing activities that um, is completely, you know, what you think are, are not associated with their work. But suddenly you find that, oh, crumbs, you know, they're quite adventurous or, um, oh, I'd never realized that about that person. and I had no idea they were artistic like that. Oh, I hadn't realized that about them. You know what I mean? And you observe all of this, you listen to all of this, and then just teeny, teeny little tweaks in what happens in the workplace, you know, through, again, the choice of words, the conversation, or when a conversation is ignited, um, all sorts of things like that, because we're all unique, we're all different, you know, we all function in our unique ways, but together it, it can be absolutely incredible. Do you think that curious people are better listeners, or do you think that um, people that know how to ask great questions tend to be better listeners? I think we're all very good listeners, to be honest. We all start life being extraordinary listeners. I mean, we really do. You know, we're extraordinary listeners in our mother's womb. We're extraordinary listeners as soon as we're born. And, uh, and, and then, obviously, we get into systems and methods and expectations and one thing or another, and then that can curb how we should listen and what we should listen to and, and all sorts of things. And, and uh, you know, but I think the, the art of improvisation is, is absolutely key to everything that we do. I really do. And if there's a moment where businesses can really open up that idea of improvisation, um, it would be quite quite extraordinary. Um, I mean, when we think of our classical composers like Bach, Haydn, Handel, Mozart, Beethoven, all the way really up to about Liszt, Paganini, you know, our Western classical composers, they were great, great improvisers. They could, you know, play by ear. They could they could write music. They could do all sorts of things. They were really 
incredible improvisers. And then suddenly the format of a classical recital and orchestral music and so on became this format. It just became that. And so people then only read music. They had lost the art of improvisation, even although they were born with it. And, you know, it's quite interesting that. And so now we're trying to ignite this again. And it's, it's strange how something that is so innate in us is then squashed to that degree whereby we think of improvisation as a scary word and, oh, no, I can't improvise. And no, that belongs to ethnic musicians or jazz musicians or folk musicians. It doesn't belong to classical musicians, but it does belong to all of us. As soon as we walk out of our door, you know, we, we improvise so we can all do it. <laughs> mm, very good point. Okay, and lastly, I've been, I've been led to believe that you have an outrageously large and extensive musical instrument collection. Well, I do. Um, I have uh, close to 3,000 instruments uh, altogether. Did you say 3,000 instruments? Yes, 3,000. And some of them are small and some of them are large. So if you can imagine something like a shaker, you know, or a pair of maracas or a tambourine is relatively small, I would say, uh, to something like the largest timpani or kettle drum in the world or... Uh, 27-piece gamelan from Indonesia, Jakarta in Indonesia, or um, lots of different types of African instruments, balafons and amadindas and jemmies and you name it, uh, Middle Eastern instruments, uh, Indian tabla, uh, to marimbas, vibraphones, tubular bells, xylophones, glockenspiels and so on. So yes, there's a, a, a fair range of instruments here and they all form part of the Evelyn Glennie collection. And within the collection are all sorts of things from photographs, correspondence, music scores, newspaper cuttings, programs, tickets, uh, clothes, you, you name it, really. Anything to do with the journey is part of the collection. And putting that collection together has been obviously a journey, as, as you would imagine, over the years. Um, do you have favorite instruments? Well, actually, you know, my, my philosophy is really simple because whichever instrument is in front of me, that's my favorite. And that's really important because it's my choice. Hold on. To be so, a, like, so like I'm the most important person to you right now. And if you've got an instrument in front of you, that's perfect. Exactly. And it's true because my choice was to be a multi-percussion player. And so there's no point in being that if I'm then picking and choosing, you know, what I like and what I don't like. So, you know, if I'm playing... A marimba, that's my favorite instrument. If I'm playing a triangle, that's my favorite instrument, and so on. And likewise with pieces of music. So if I'm playing a particular piece of music, I regard that as being the greatest piece of music ever. And it allows me to give 200% of myself. So, and especially when you're dealing with new music, I mean, it, it's very easy to think, oh my God, I don't like that, or oh yes, I do like that. But actually, if you think, right, this is really a great piece of music. It, you'll f discover that the whole journey is like a, pe well, I suppose peeling layers of an onion, you know, whereas if you go in there saying, actually, I don't really like this piece of music, then already, you know, there's kind of this sort of baggage on your shoulders and you're forcing yourself to practice and you say, oh, you know, do I have to play this? Will I ever play it again? Whereas when you think of it as a positive experience, it's amazing how big a percentage of the repertoire I play, I play many times. 
Evelyn Glennie, it's been an absolute joy spending time talking <laughs> to you. You genuinely are someone who I could spend the next four or five hours just sitting, chewing the fat and learning from you. So I really genuinely appreciate you taking the time to come and spend time with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. And before we finish, did you enjoy yourself? I had a lovely time. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, you're a, you're a natural, a natural. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe now Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is but it's Arabic for my success and Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers motivational speakers inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years and Abu Dhabi mind you and Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. Hopefully you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you are listening to it on iTunes, it really means a lot to me if you were to go and leave a five-star review, rate this show, because the more it gets rated, the more people are going to hear about it. And if you're listening to this on any other podcast app for that matter, you can leave a follow, a like, get engaged, give me some feedback. Let me know how to be better. Let me know what you don't like even, you know. I'm all ears because I want to create really valuable content for you. Thanks for listening today and I can't wait to catch up with you on the next episode.